Everyone has an interesting story to tell, and I want to share them with the world. I am your host, Mr. Minigolf, and this is my show, Par for the Course. Last week on Par for the Course, we heard from the comedian Hugh Kelly talk about his career as a comedian, as well as the release of his new book, A Game of Kooky Drones. This week on Par for the Course, we're hearing from Tom Loftus, also known as Mr. T. Tom is a fellow mini-golfer, blogger, and a co-founder of A Couple of Putts, one of the best mini-golf blogs out there. Listen in as we dive into the story of Tom Loftus. The sponsors of this episode for Par for the Course are Night Sports USA, the creators of the fantastic Night Sports 7-Color Spectrum Light Activated Golf Ball, which changes the night game of golf and mini-golf alike. Another sponsor of the show is Swingtime Germantown, my favorite mini-golf course in all of Wisconsin. Experience it for yourself and be amazed. Our next sponsor is Jackpot, the traveling and charitable mini-golf hole-in-one skills contest where you always putt for dough. Lastly, we have minigolfreviews.com, one of the largest mini-golf websites in the world with tons of great mini-golf content. With over 5 million views to date, will you be part of the largest mini-golf empire out there? Now on to the show. All right, welcome everybody. This is Par for the Course with Mr. Minigolf. Today's guest is Tom Loftus of A Couple of Putts. Um, Tom, please uh, introduce yourself. And I'm, I know a bunch of people are going to be interested in hearing your story today. Thanks for having me on, Carl. Uh, yeah. My name is Tom Loftus. Um, my moniker and nickname for our mini golf endeavor, A Couple of Putts, is Mr. T. Uh, my wife, Robin, does it with me. Uh, her nickname is The Pink Putter. Came up with those names when we started the website now eight years ago. Uh, wow, we yeah. had our first date uh, no, about almost nine years ago now in September. And on that date, we played an artist design mini golf course. Both realized we had a mutual passion and decided to go down the rabbit hole that's I'll talk about more as this uh, as this podcast goes on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what's what's a better date idea than uh, playing around a mini golf? I can't think of a better one. I mean, that's where mini golf course is where Homer can, and Marge conceived Bart. It's mm-hmm. the first date scene for the Karate Kid movie. Uh, there's tons of pop culture stuff: Rugrats, Gone Girl. Uh, happy Gilmore that are all really awesome. They have awesome scenes on mini golf courses, but yeah. Uh, mini golf course is like the perfect first date sort of uh, kind of the place that I imagined like as a, when I was really young, it's like, where would the first date happen? It feels like a mini golf course was the right place for it to be. Yeah. I mean, cause if you think about like, if you go see a movie, right, you're not interacting with the person that you're on a date with. I mean, unless it's just like, you know, it hits real quick and you're making out in the back of the movie theater. Um, for the most part, you're, you know, you're paying attention to the movie. You're not paying attention to the person. And then like, you know, if the, the movie sucks, then you kind of have that like association with the, the person you're with. So it's not necessarily that I think the best for a first date, but miniature golf, I mean, you have that competition. It can be, it can be get really serious in the competition wise, which could be, I guess, a challenge, but I think people like having that competition um, especially, you know, 
keep it close. I know um, you and Robin have competitions against each other all the time. I mean, I have the same with my wife. Um, she does beat me on, on, on occasion. I'll put that on the record. Um, but uh, I'll also take credit that I taught her everything she knows. So that's all right, right? Um, yeah, so- we, we play pretty evenly ourselves We from going back and forth. Uh, I mean, I think Robin has like the better natural focus that I think does that it like naturally uh, has always worked well for her. But yeah, we, we go back and forth. We've both gotten better and I've kept, I started to keep track of our scores a couple years ago just to prove to Robin that like our games have gotten better mm-hmm. because we looked at early scorecards and some pretty abysmal scores. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty cool to s- just see that, you know, the practice pays off and um, obviously it pays off because uh, you were, you both were contestants on season one of Holy Moly, which is a, is like one of the crowning achievements for miniature golfers, I guess, in the, in the, the, the last two years, right? Um, Tom's going to be doing a special episode in regards to Holy Moly. So you'll hear all of his uh, behind the scenes type of comments and, and content. And, you know, you never know what kind of cool stories would, uh, would come from that. And um, being on season two myself, um, I definitely have a lot of stories that I can't wait to share with people. But um, at, at this point, when as we're recording, my episode hasn't aired yet. So um, you're going to have to tune in and watch and see what happens because it's pretty awesome. Um, so, um, but I want to know also kind of how a couple of putts got started. Like how did um, you decide that there was a need to create something like that? Well, with a couple of putts, I think our first date was so memorable and we played at a course called Big Stone, this artist designed course that had really resonated with Robert and I. We had played other uh, artist design courses that had been around at the Walker Arts Center and both had grown up with a real passion for the game. Robin grew up on the East Coast and went to the Jersey Shore as a kid and in travels with our family and throughout Minnesota. We had played over the years and my family did and we really enjoyed it and started playing more as an adult again, probably in my 30s even more like I played always played played with friends here and there Mm -hmm. but picked it up a little bit more as I was you know regularly going out and doing music stuff and I think I was looking for additional adventures I mean I've to this point in the last like 25 years seen like a couple thousand shows like every year it's like see a couple hundred shows and I'll talk about sort of all of that Um, but that's related to the record label I've run since 1999 called Modern Radio. And due to that, I had been aware of, you know, a lot of websites that were documenting subcultures of music that were really, you know, interesting and had lots of stories and people were really passionate about and telling all those stories. And coming into mini golf, I immediately looked to it as I got deeper into it to see how people were telling stories of the game and capturing what I think we saw as the magic and the imagination that the game had, because it wasn't just for us about the game as much as it was about the experience and the magic that comes out of those really great courses. The way that we like to look at it is the best courses give you the opportunity to escape onto the surface or the turf as the ball and sort of 
move through all of these different areas. We love those courses the best that are more immersive and take you away from where you're at and really put you in that moment. And it makes like games really memorable and it makes courses really memorable. And the same can be said about music, like really great music with really great packaging that everything comes together and the visuals related to it and the story that the artists are telling along with the music creates something that's beyond just words and notes being played. And I think the same was, I had the same feeling and the same passion about mini golf and we had discovered that together and had a point of view and we wanted to share that. And we wanted to do that visually. And I looked at a lot of things that were out there and realized there wasn't a ton of visually focused places to find mini golf stuff at that time. And more than anything else, we wanted to document the game that we had realized, I think in our early research, that so many courses that we'd played in the past had just gone away and disappeared. Um, if you've ever, if, I'm sure you have the John Margolis, um, I can't remember the other artists on it, but there's a mini golf book that you can find on Amazon pretty regularly that has like this turf cover and yep, all these I photos. That, that, yep. It's awesome. And I highly recommend it. You can find it used pretty regularly, like online. And the photos in there are pretty remarkable and almost maybe a tenth of the courses in there still exist. And it's like a documentation of roadside culture style as well as these handmade things from a different era where if you look at it and, you know, if you look at those courses now, they really stand out. But for their time, there was really a distinct style that had taken place and has gone away. And what we had realized is like, boy, like there was a couple in our own area that were in there. There was a park, a uh, mini golf course near uh, uh, the state fairgrounds in Como Park in Minnesota that had been long gone. There was no trace of it. You could barely even find any information or archival uh, footage of it. And so that got us to thinking like, boy, we really ought to document some of these courses we're playing as we're playing a lot because they might go away. And mm -hmm. we wanted to find those photos of courses that we had really cherished memories of and thought that that would be a good way to look at the game. And so, and we included not only, we wanted to not only include pictures of the course, but we also wanted to tell our story in relation to having a point of view about it. Like the, you know, we knew that there were people like Pat Sheridan, the putting penguin that did an amazing job talking about the holes as far as like how they play and competitively how mini golf worked. But I think we were more coming at it from a visual aesthetic point of view and um, wanted just to document like our point of view. But frankly, like we were looking at, you know, Richard and Emily Gottfried's website, the Ham and Egger files and the crazy world of mini golf tour, Pat's website, and just felt like, Hey, like these guys are sharing, like, why don't we, you know, come in with just like a different, you know, with our own touch and with Robin being an artist herself, mm -hmm. I think for us, we wanted to just have it really be visually um, appealing. And that was like a thing for me that if we were doing it, I, I wanted the aesthetics to be right. Uh, from running a record label for me, we might have, I might have put out 70 some releases, but I could have put out more. But for me, it was really important with everything to be intentional and have things look really great. And that's like a really, uh, that, that's a really important part to, 
I think capturing the magic and to give it a sense of place um, with everything else and in context of what we really love about uh, particular courses. So that's what we started out with and it's, you know, shortly went from documenting courses uh, locally and traveling a little bit to getting opportunities to design holes, uh, not only in Minnesota, but it extended around the world to a number of major museums, to having a few clients around the country, to even an opportunity to go to the Middle East, where we worked with students uh, to build a course for an international design conference that was a pretty remarkable experience and really eye-opening of how accessible and how really um, open of a platform mini golf is not only as design goes but even for a game yeah absolutely i mean you you guys are definitely telling a narrative to all these courses that you travel to and visit i mean uh to to align with you guys i mean i feel like i fall in between you and pat sheridan for for my site so like i like to you know do the visual aspect and and kind of give a little details on that and share um like you know best shots but it's it's kind of like uh if if people want to hear more of a, a story to go along with it i direct people over to to you guys if people want to see more um especially since i haven't really been out on the east coast myself uh, i send people more to like pat for the punting penguin because uh, he's got that area pretty much locked down that's for sure with all those guys but it, it's just really cool to see you know everybody all the people getting involved with mini golf and you know it just it just the industry just keeps getting bigger and bigger and better um i mean i had that same like feeling when i started uh, mini golf reviews because i was thinking about a course when i that i played as a kid growing up and i was like man I know it closed, but I wonder if I could find any pictures about it. Right. And I couldn't mm -hmm. find anything. There was, there's not any evidence of it other than maybe in people's personal like picture books or things or scrapbooks, things like that. But you know, no, they're not posting it digitally online or anything like that. So it's like the only representation of that particular course I have is, you know, the memories I have in my head. So it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to keep seeing, uh, courses closed down and not have that evidence that they ever existed because even though you might find a course that's similar in nature like a design might be similar to another course they all have like their own soul and and heart in each course that you play um, I just think that all of us together are doing a great job creating that archive of mini golf you know mm -hmm. and I think I mean, if you look at the last real boom of mini golf was at a time well before there was, you know, really accessible, easy to use digital photography and digital tools compared to today. Mm -hmm. And that makes it a lot easier to document the game these days. And it's great to like see that there's so many people out there documenting the game and doing cool things like, we regularly are watching, you know, videos by the guys from O Street where they're like competing against each other and playing mini golf and really enjoy that experience, getting to see like the ball moving and doing that. And, you know, we've, we have our own like short little walkthrough videos that we're doing, but watching other people compete is something that we enjoy watching and consuming that's 
probably like for us, we're I think a little bit more on the, you know, like doing the photography and doing a quick walkthrough, but for our own personal enjoyment, we love watching those guys, especially just as we become like good friends uh, in the last year and meeting them through uh, our experience on Holy Moly. Um, I think it's even further our notion of the game really being able to bring people together. And I think we're hoping to do more of that and to really expand um, what the game can be and that it's a really open platform to anybody, that there's some really amazing mini golfers that play in wheelchairs and are all over the globe and are making mini golf holes in their house during this moment where we're all dealing with COVID-19. The best thing that we've seen is photos of people in Iran and in Italy and in Spain and in South America and in Ghana, people just making stuff at home. And that's what I've really loved about mini golf. I, I grew up, uh, you know, playing sports and kind of trying to figure out what, you know, like what I liked and what I wanted to do. And I ended up landing on basketball for a really long period of time. And part of it was, it was something I could do on my own. And it was really easy to pick up and play across borders and travels overseas for volunteer organizations I worked with, or just in general, you know, I could pick up a game of pas basketball and there didn't, you didn't really need to have this like long explanation of what's going on in the rules. Like, you know, played in a pickup game in Paris just while I was like studying abroad and people were like yelling at each other and motioning at each other. And it really didn't need any language. And the same goes for mini golf. That was so fun about, you know, last weekend where a bunch of us were like putting in our own houses in like a tournament on the same putting mats in four very different time zones or one to five different time zones. Cause I guess Pat uh, was on the East coast. Then we had people in New Zealand, Australia, and the UK all playing at the same time. And uh, that, that's, that to me is the really fun thing about the game. And I think there's an opportunity for a lot of people to come into the game right now, to document it, to be a part of it, to play in it. And it's a really open platform. It's not overly defined. And I find that, I find that really appealing. I feel like so many other uh, sports cultures are overly defined or have defined themselves in a way sometimes that's really inaccessible and not affordable for the average person to do. I mean, just to get on. And this is like, you know, like I know tons of people that love golf, but like just to get on like a golf course and a set of clubs, there's a lot of money that goes into that. Like you can go play a round of mini golf and have no gear for five bucks. You can go pick up a basketball, you know, play a pickup basketball game for almost nothing. And you could, you know, hang a, you know, peach basket or like a crate on a tree or something and have a ball and all of a sudden, you're playing basketball, the same with mini golf. You just have a putter or something that approximates a putter and something that approximates a ball. And then you just dig a hole somewhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's one of the things I love too. Is, and you guys are known for saying that uh, mini golf is for everyone. I mean, it really is. I mean, it, all ages can play, all demographics, any location. It's just, they just need to know it exists. And, you know, the, the basic elements of, of coming together to do that. I mean, it's, it's just really cool to see, like you said, all the different countries and areas of the world that although we're all being faced with this, uh, this pandemic, you know, they're still able to come together, have some fun, um, have some enjoyment, but, you know, um, do the, something together that, you know, 
virtually that connects us to one another and and it's just it's really cool to see from the different uh areas of the world like the designs that people come up with and how creative people can be um just because they need something to do um i mean we you participated in the the very first putt for pledges that we did uh for the leukemia and lymphoma society i i thought that was a really cool opportunity too i mean it, it kind of sparked from uh watching people do these put, putting from home videos and things like that. And it was like, why not come together and have some fun together and do that for a good cause, you know? So it, it's kind of neat how that took off and um, more people are interested in doing that. So we'll definitely be having some more uh, fun miniature golf together all over the world. Um, and hopefully that just becomes something so big that um, people are just anticipating on getting into the next one and the next one, and it just gets bigger and bigger and better. Um, I got, I got to ask because as both mini golf enthusiasts, um, a question that always comes up is what's your favorite course. And if you have a favorite hole design or, or anything like that, you can definitely, uh, I know it's tough to narrow it down. So feel free to pick maybe like your favorite home course for you in Minnesota, as well as just like a favorite course that you've played anywhere in the world. And then if you have any like particular hole designs that you particularly like to play, um, just because it's always kind of fun to hear, um, you know, what excites you uh, in regards to mini golf, even though everything is exciting, right? Sure. Uh, as far as favorite holes, that that I that I have that I have to think about. I've seen. I feel like there's holes that have like a lot of amazing creativity and are really unique and cool. I, th I think of like a bunch of the holes at Urban Butt in San Francisco. Okay that we've played a few times that are that they have so many where the ball takes a trip around the room and really has an experience that's super cool. I, I, I would say that's my favorite indoor course. I really like the slide holes at Vitense and Madison. They have holes where you get to start out at one level, you hit the ball down to the lower level, and then you take a slide down to it. To me, like experiencing that, um, experiencing that ride that the ball is taking, I really enjoy. I'd probably say if like individual holes, I'd probably say my favorite that I've played would probably be the one that's right above me, uh, Dutch Courage on uh, season one of Holy Moly. Like getting to play that, you know, was unbelievable. That that to me is like the the you know, like mini golf at its like peak, that it's clever, it's immersive. There's an element of having to like experience and move through it, but it's also not like crazy aggressive where you can like get, you know, where you, where you really can get hurt. I mean, some people got hit by those blades on season one. I didn't, uh, it didn't air, I but I, I can prove it, I guess, with other people that were there. Uh, but it was, it was such a rush and it was so much excitement to do something that you've watched the ball have an experience of and now you get to have yourself. And just how it looked visually, everything around that hole and that course, just, I mean, they have like the budget to end all budgets, but I, yeah, I just love that. That that you know, if I have to say like one course that you could actually go out and play, I've 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 had a bunch that I really really like. 
but I'd still say parking is top of my list. There's nothing like those two courses there. They take immaculate care of it. They're clearly, they clearly have an attention to detail as well as creating things in the gameplay that are both, you know, excite the imagination and move your eye around the course, but also reward some skill at the end of the day. Um, other courses, you know, Mount Atlanticus and Myrtle Beach, around the world in Goof, uh, Goonie Golf and Lake George, New York are really great. Um, yeah, those, those are some of my favorites. Then locally, I've got a soft spot for the big thrill factory locations and Lilliput. Uh, Lilliput's the course that I grew up playing as a kid and still love playing it as an adult. My first, One of our early reviews was of that course where I was uh, particularly harsh on the conditions. They just really let it go. And I was really excited when they cleaned it up because the course design itself is really um, creative. It's challenging. It's subtly like has elements that are fun, uh, but it is not overly difficult. So I, and it, and I really like those courses that have holes where it's a mix of some where you could get a hole in one, but others that are take some challenge and that there's really no way of getting around it. You have to kind of think out like where your second shot is going to be. And it's kind of got a risk rewards elements in it. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta get creative with, with your shots in order to, you know, find that victory. And, and that's when you can, the really good players, you know, that's when they can overtake their opponents because, you know, they're thinking outside of the box and how to play a shot when other people are just like walk up and hit it. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, the the cool thing with like the holy moly hole that you you said the one that's right behind you the uh, Dutch Courage, I mean, when most people think of mini golf, like the iconic symbol is that windmill. So it's like like the capstone for I think holy moly. Like they definitely emphasized that a lot for season one, and it, it was a great hole to watch for sure. Um, how many windmills do you think you've ever you've played on miniature golf courses? Do you, would you say that um, it's more common than not as a, a symbol on miniature golf still today even, or do you think there's something that's kind of overtaking that? That's a good question. I'd say with windmills on courses, there's a certain level at which people put them on courses because they're a tradition. But I do feel like a lot of the new courses – are less likely to have a windmill and that a lot of the courses that have uh, windmills tend to be like a carryover from probably the nineties, sometimes sure. even like the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Dino- dinosaurs are pretty common and have stayed common. Uh, Lighthouses food. would be another one. Lighthouses would definitely be another one. Uh, vehicles. I think anything related to leisure and sports see pop up. Um, loops loops are still loops are still out there i i think one of the things that really appealed us right away to the game with the first hole that we designed that was at the walker art center um was can you handle this was an inverted watering can that the handle was a loop and for us the reason that we did that is that while we wanted to take a nod to the early you know the early uh version of the game I think we've always seen the game of mini golf as a place where you can really iterate and make new things. 
and there's a lot of room for that. I think sadly there's a lot of courses that, and people that we've talked to and we've consulted on courses, where they immediately think that there's this sort of tradition you have to stick with. You have to stick with 18 holes. You have to stick with X amount of, you know, you know, kinds of like obstacles that you have to have on everything. And hold on one sec, my light in here is dark, so I don't want up close everybody. Um, (laughs) uh, That I, I think the conventions that are common to the game, we really like to break those conventions and try new things with them. Our next design that will who knows when we'll get install install it at the Elmhurst Museum uh, outside of Chicago is a take on the traditional castle, but we really wanted to have it say something about the game, about its tradition in there, but say something new that we hadn't seen. Yeah, absolutely. that that that's I think the thing that gets us the most excited, and I think that's why Holy Moly seeing that was so exciting. We really thrive on seeing things that we haven't seen before and someone does something really creative and interesting with it. I think that's what always appealed me at a certain point to people that were taking chances in music and why I started putting records out of my own record label was I really liked seeing people try new things out versus, you know, apply to conventions because it's easier and there's like a well-worn path. To me, that's, the well-worn path has like never been the one I've really been appealed to. It's why I've worked in the nonprofit world. It's why, you know, even after getting an undergraduate degree in management, like why I ended up focusing on nonprofits with my master's studies and a lot of my career and why I've put more effort into working into mission-driven and creative organizations uh, throughout my entire life is that that felt more meaningful to do than to like apply to conventions and say, well, I could just get a job here and it'll pay me money. And this is a good way to make money. I'd rather take some risks and do something I feel really good about than just do something. Cause that's kind of how it's always been done. Yeah. I mean, uh, people say that where they go like, Oh, I'll just work this job, you know, cause I can get some money and then it can fulfill, you know, other things that I want to do. But more than not, more often than not, you know, these cases turn up to be 40 years go by and they're still stuck doing whatever that job was and not pursuing the passion that they had. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, like life is so short that if you don't take advantage when you have that like aha moment of like, how can I follow my passion and, you know, make it a career, make it a, a way that I can help other people with my passion um, you got to jump on it right away. Uh, like one of the things I like to say is, you know, you, you can have dreams, right. But if you don't do anything with that dream and make it a reality, it's still just a dream. You just, can, you'll just watch it go by as your life goes by. And I think that's, what's really cool. Uh, at least about the two of us, um, we both have pursued stuff that is not that traditional route by far. Like, um, I don't know how often, people say that, uh, this to you, but when you talk about, you know, you have a career with miniature golf, do people say like, I didn't even know that was a thing? I, yeah, I think people like are just like, that's like a thing. I, I, I'm slightly reluctant to talk about any of it as 
career. So like part of my, part of my life, I spent some time working in career education with musicians and creatives Mm -hmm. that actually came in a weird roundabout way after, during the last big recession, I did a whole bunch of different things between running a record label that, you know, I'd been running DJing and had a lot of different things that I was like juggling, working for small organizations. Um, and eventually realized like, okay, like burn through unemployment. I need to like really figure out a career. And the hard part is, is to get something that you really like as a day job and balance with your passions is hard. And we do a really terrible job in this country teaching people about like what career looks like and how to find that balance. And I had that going up to that point. And I think through the process of finding work, I, I learned a lot and I learned that there were a lot, there was a lot of bad advice out there. I remember the real breakthrough moment where oddly enough, I also met my current boss at Paul in Midwest was at an event where this uh, person spoke up and had talked about applying to over 300 jobs on this job board in a year and hadn't gotten an interview for any of them. And it was that aha moment that it's not just about volume, but it's about when you're applying yourself to things, telling why you distinctly want to work with them. And we don't really tell people that. They're just like, if you don't have a job, just apply to a bunch of places. This place is hiring, that place is hiring. You can get a job anywhere. There's money to be had everywhere. And people will root you on and be like, oh, I can't believe you didn't get that job. But in many cases, I think we don't do a good job at saying like, hey, make sure that you, when you're going out to try to get a job, not only telling them why you want to work there, but what you like about them and what you understand about them. And I think it really came through as I started working with young creatives and students and seeing that full picture and became really passionate about career and thinking about what's the balance of passion and career. And the reality is with a lot of endeavors, they can be endeavors of passion that give you a ton of fulfillment that don't actually pay the bills now and might not ever do it. Um, I was listening to, I was just listening to a podcast today where two people who, you know, live out in LA and we're talking about, you know, it was a Bill Simmons podcast and he was talking with Ryan Rosillo about how many people they knew that were out in LA that came out there because they had a hope of one thing or another and they're really going at it, but it like never happens for. And those stories are, told so rarely we always like to tell the story oh the person left everything and, and it dropped was successful their, right and they were yeah. super successful yeah. and they have money and fame and that the money and fame validates their decision to pursue their passion completely blindly in some cases uh and that their success should be an example to you but by and large if you look at the music world for example i think with people who run record labels I'd say a conservative number is 95% of people that run record labels barely break even. I mean, it's, it's a hard, hard racket to make money at different points. It's been easier where there were high profit art items like CDs that were easier to break even on. But in this day and age, it's really, really hard to make money in that field. And the people that do are really good at what they do. They're really smart, but more than anything else, chance and opportunity came their way and things fell in a certain way that happened to land. And that's kind of how I approached the music world from the beginning when I started my label. I DJ, book shows, 
grew to get to know like a comedian of young musicians or like a community of young musicians that no one else wanted to document. And I was like, well, I've learned enough from volunteering at record stores and doing all this other stuff that I'm going to give it a shot myself and took some like big losses early, had some big successes in the end, worked with artists like Motion City Soundtrack and Deerhoof and Mira that have toured the globe several times over and worked with tons of local bands like Stunning and Vampire Hands and Signal to Trust. They're some of my favorite bands in the world. And they had, you know, a mix of success, but ultimately I worked with them because I, at the end of the day, could say I really loved what they did and I could feel confident that I contributed to that world, even though at no point really like running a business, keeping track of all the finances, paying out royalties and all of that stuff, like everything that comes with the business, like doing your annual filings, all of that, you know, doing all the mail order, getting stuff in record stores, none of that actually made uh, me a living. It was stuff that I did on the side and that I ultimately balanced my day jobs and sometimes to the fault of my like traditional career Mm -hmm. by taking jobs that I knew would have flexibility to allow me to do those things. And I still do that today. Like my, my full day job at Pollen Midwest, which I absolutely adore um, we have an executive director that really uh, that really honors and appreciates the work of people on the team and the work-life balance is a big part of it. And when we were talking and negotiating with my position, part of it was to not go full, full-time. It was to work enough hours where I know that I could make enough to get by, but also have enough freedom and headspace to do my other creative endeavors, even if some of them aren't making a lot, it would just give me the space to do it. Because that's, that's always the toughest balance. You can, you can run multiple businesses, which I've done, and have them not actually generate anything in the way of resembling a sustainable income. And there's a lot of people that do but like, preach, like, just drop everything. And in many cases, they have like a, you know, they have like a a life preserver, they have, you know, something else that helps allow them to do that. And I think there's a lot of really reckless behavior or reckless advice given out there around that. And I think the balance is, is you'll know when there's a moment where the money and the work are coming in together at a way where if you started to balance it out, like, what if I did this as a day? What if I was like delivering sandwiches as my day job? How much would I make a year? And how much could I make doing this if I project it out? And if it makes more sense, if the thing that you're doing creatively makes a little bit more money, seems sustainable and feels good, it's worth taking a shot and seeing where it goes. With also knowing that if you don't make all the money in the world and you have to go back and do the balancing thing, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's you know, big peaks and valleys that we've had times where we've been juggling multiple build and design projects for a couple of putts and other times where it's like, you know, one or two at most. And that's fine. I think that's what I'm more interested in sustainable careers and ways to sustain passions than going whole hog. Cause I saw, I've seen people who go all in on the music business and they are fully burnt out by 26, 27. They're done. They're like, I can't do this anymore. And some of it's just making a choice and seeing and and protecting those things that you're passionate about and you love um, and not 
do them, not do them solely because like it's going to try to make an income, but that at the end of the day, if no one was paying you to do it, would you keep doing things like that? And the answer is absolutely yes with all the things that I do. Yeah. I mean, just to relate with that, I mean, yeah, I did, I did change from a traditional path. I jumped ship and kind of went all in with uh, miniature golf. But the thing was, though, it wasn't like I just, you know, didn't put thought into it. I did have a full strategy on doing that. You know, um, I do have a part-time job during the week. Mm -hmm. You know, I work at a miniature golf and driving range, so which is great because you get the, all that practice that you need all the time. But it was like, yeah, I know with the stuff that I'm doing with miniature golf is not necessarily sustainable entirely on its own because a lot of like the stuff I do is event based. So like, I'm not going to have an event every day. So I have to be realistic to, mm -hmm. to sustain that and, you know, continue to bring in income. But I, I made, I, I made that decision to complement what I'm doing. Right. So mm -hmm. having still be surrounded by golf and everything I do, um, just some things are, is it, obviously I'd like to be out designing courses for everybody to have a, their own course in their backyard and, and all that kind of stuff. But that's, it's just not, it's that, that's not realistic. That's not where we're at maybe yet, maybe in a couple years after a few more seasons of Holy Moly, that might change a bit, but, um, you know, that, that's like the, the thing, like, I think if people put in the, the thought behind it and they come up with a, a strategy and, you know, they really crunch the numbers, I think they can just determine that maybe they can't, you know, go full-time into something, but they can make a transition where maybe they, it might lead to something because if they're stuck doing that job that, you know, they're not really interested in, but you know, it's just paying the bills and not pursuing that passion side, you know, they're, they're going to get burned out just from doing that. And they're not going to feel like the, they fulfilled, you know, their true self or their, you mm -hmm. know, their, their inner feelings and emotions on that, on that. But uh, if, if they come up with that strategy that they can at least try it out, you know, maybe more opportunities open up for them and, you know, allows them to pursue, you know, more with that. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Pollen Midwest. I, I would mm -hmm. like to hear a bit more about that. Uh, what's what's that organization all about? And mm -hmm. like, what do you guys do there? And um, yeah, let's hear hear about that. Yeah, Pollen Midwest is a uh, Minneapolis-based arts nonprofit organization. We're a media arts organization that does uh, really deep storytelling focused on empathy, racial justice, and telling the stories of of you know what uh, is going on in the world and making sure to lift up the voices of those people that aren't being heard and it happens in a number of ways we've put together events where we have people talking about um, the things that they do in their work and in their life and what they're doing for organizing work and what they're doing for creative work and their challenges in the workplace and in the world and then we also have people telling those stories on paulandmidwest.org. Uh, we do that. We're doing that right now. We're doing a whole series of storytelling uh, around COVID-19 called "Are You Okay?" Where we've tapped people that have been writers for our website to tell what their world looks like during this time in the world. We're having artists that we bring in to complement it to help tell that story. And a big part of what Paulin's been known for since the beginning is that we've really had a uh, a knack for the visual aesthetic when it comes to all of our event branding, all of our visuals. And because of that over the years, 
we've been tapped by a lot of uh, similarly minded, uh, mission-driven nonprofits to help them do design, event uh, management, and storytelling work uh, as part of our Pollen Studio social enterprise. And we've been uh, doing that with a small team that's been growing for a while. I've only been on fully for about the last year, um, had worked in some other arts nonprofits as well as some other nonprofits in general doing work around the globe. Uh, after getting my master's in nonprofit management. And uh, Pollen's just like the real distillation of all that I think that matches up well and aligns with my passions, but the work that I'm doing there uh, also allows me to have flexibility. I'm doing a mix of helping with fundraising, helping with doing basic operations and finance as well as event management. And I really love it. I love the people that I've worked with the end of the day, like I deeply care about what they're doing, who they are as people and consider them all like friends. Uh, and for me, that's always been important, not only to be working on causes uh, that I care about, but with people I admire and like, and for people I admire and respect. I mean, one of my jobs to get experience in the past was working at a fabrication shop where they built mini golf stuff and cool like fiberglass stuff and it was really not a great experience i honestly like there was a lots of elements of it uh like the people i worked with were great but just the way that it was managed and the way that people were treated there wasn't going to be sustainable i learned the things that i needed to learn and i learned that i don't want to be in like a similar type environment despite many good things and that sort of you know was like a nice little lesson along the road and I think that's what I've gained with like all the different things that I've done throughout my career and my life I mean the hats that I've worn is you know arts administrator DJ record label owner uh, higher ed like career person and um, arts nonprofit administrator and all of them you know, were things that I was like trying to like land on things that I love and do something during the day where I can make money, but ultimately would also bring me vitality so that when I'm getting off of that nine to five job that from the other five to nine that I have that energy to really put into things like a couple of putts of the label modern radio and lots of other things. Yeah. It's like, just like doing that work gives you like an energy drink so you can make it through the other stuff and, and really just have that creative juice in your brain and, mm -hmm. and, and just make it sustainable. Um, so we're near uh, winding down on time here. Um, definitely want you to come back for, uh, uh, well, one, you'll be back for a Holy Moly episode, give your behind the scenes stories there, but definitely want to hear more about um, the work that you guys are doing with Pollen, uh, your record label and all of that. So um, we'll have you back for another episode to share that information, but at least for our viewers now, uh, what's a great way for people to find you and reach out to you if, if they want, they have questions or they want to get in touch with you. Sure. For anything uh, with a couple of putts, you can find us at couple putts on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, we also have YouTube, Pinterest and all that. Our website's a couple of putts.com. Uh, for Modern Radio, modern-radio.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And then for myself, all of my social media handles is just at Tom R, that R being my middle initial, Loftus. So 
uh, initials are TRL, um, Tom R. Loftus. You can find me, connect with me. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the music world or mini golf, I'm always happy to connect with people. That's why I'm out on social media. And yeah, we'll have to talk about Holy Moly. I, I feel like maybe we could even wait till the end of the season because <laughs> my experience, uh, my viewing experience extends uh, beyond, season in, one. Yeah. beyond season one. And uh, I'll probably have to look and see what I can even share about that in relation to season two. I think it's all really confusing for those of us that this is like being on TV is such a weird thing that none of us ever expected. If you told me that, you know, when I was really young, that A, I'd put out records at some point by any band to be like, that's crazy. (laughs) Like I didn't have anything to do with people making music, let alone music that I like absolutely admire and love. And that, be, you'd be on a show that gets promoted during the NBA finals, a thing that you look forward to every year and is one of the hosts is probably your current active favorite basketball player, Steph Curry. And it's a mini golf course like you've never seen before and that really no one else gets to play. And that's the thing that you do is you seek out weird mini golf courses that don't exist anywhere. And you got to do that. It's like, I don't know. It, what a time to be alive, right? Yeah, it, I mean, it was an experience like nothing else. There's, you know, there's no experience in my life that prepared me for just like the way that my brain went. I mean, like I got, I could barely sleep. I lost tons of weight and I had like, just like my brain was just like an overdrive of fun. So yeah, I, I to say the least, I'd be more than happy to come back and talk about awesome. it. Awesome, perfect. Yeah, so everybody, please check out uh, Tom Loftus' page uh, in our guest directory. You can find out all the links for all this stuff and connect with him. So thank you very much, Tom, for being on the show, and we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure, Carl. And that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget to check out the guest profiles for each of our guests uploaded on Fridays on the Par for the Course Business Podcast website. Tune in next week to hear another great episode of Par for the Course with another great guest and me, Mr. Minigolf. The Par for the Course podcast is a Mr. Minigolf production. Music was produced by Donald Alford II.